This episode is sponsored by The Kings. Thank you for all of your love and support. This week on Steadfast. Because the person needs to know I'm not leaving. Ever. I'm not ever leaving. Because what does that do for us? That frees us to be honest. Welcome to Steadfast, a pro-life podcast where we talk about how the pro-life movement is evolving and how you can participate. I'm your host, Sammy Carroll, Education Coordinator at Life Choices Women's Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, and our prayer is that this podcast inspires you. Welcome to Steadfast. What is up, everybody? Today on Steadfast, we talk to Mike Phelan, who is the director of the Office of Marriage and Respect Life here in the Diocese of Phoenix. We talk about marriage, things that engaged couples should know, things that we need to work on in a marriage, and a lot about contraception and natural family planning. And it's such a good conversation that we actually had to split it up into two episodes. Um, So I'll be posting that bonus episode And in that conversation, we really talk more about homeschooling and making a life-giving home. And that's something that's just a very near and dear subject to me. So that one is definitely one to check out. It's really funny and we get to be a bit more casual and uh, laugh together. And it was just great. And I really appreciate Mike for joining us. So here is part one of my conversation with Mike Phelan. All right, you ready? I'm all ready. Welcome to Steadfast. How are you doing? I am doing well, Sammy. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I have a story to start this podcast with. Um, So my aunt is apparently best friends with your sister. My aunt is Katie Sukup. Oh, I know Katie Sukup. Ah, and uh at her wedding, I don't know if you will recall, but there was a young girl that may have tackled a bridesmaid for the bouquet during the bouquet toss. That was you. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of Katie. She's a remarkable person. She's uh, she's one of the neat neat people my sister is, is friends with. So, so can you? I think she caught the bouquet at our wedding. I am actually, I'm absolutely positive of that. Really? Katie Sukup, uh, she was Katie. Payne. Payne at the time, caught caught the bouquet at our wedding. Yeah, when my wife threw it. So there you go. That's hilarious. It's a very small Catholic world. Let's be real. So can you tell us about yourself and how did you become the director of the Office of Marriage and Respect Life? Yeah, so um, I'm a husband of Sharon for 26 years now, father of six children and uh, five boys, which, uh, as we like to say, is is um, why we've learned definitively not to become attached to any one piece of furniture, <laughs> because it's all a playground anyways, and uh, it's a joy. It's a total joy, and um they are, they are now ages uh, 23 down to 13. So, uh, yeah. So life is good and busy, and we have all teenagers and above. It's very strange to change. It's definitely a change just in the last couple of months. Um, professionally, I ended up here. I've been here for 17 years directing this office for the Diocese of Phoenix, which is called the Marriage and Respect Life Office. 
I previously was a teacher, junior high teacher, English, history, theater, basketball coach. That was my previous profession. And about five years into our marriage, when I was teaching and my wife um, was a career, career coach at Salt River Project. So we both had fairly start, well-started careers. Uh, I encountered this thing called the theology of the body in a very powerful way. And I went to an, a weekend conference on the topic and we were already um, trying, to live, trying to live our marriage in a, in a strong way. We were teaching natural family planning already and stuff like that. But theology of the body, John Paul II's mind on, on the body, the meaning of male and female marriage and sexuality and the vocation to live love blew me away. It filled in all these gaps for me. And I just was so passionate to know more. And, and Sharon and I had such profound and healing conversations. We had some healing to do in our, in our marriage and our own relationship and on that weekend. And we both left there kind of in awe of that experience. This was 2002. And on our way home, she said, hey, honey, I think I see you teaching this someday. And I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that because I'm thinking the same thing. I cannot, oh wow, 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 wow. But what does that look like? You know, we had two children at the time. We had established careers. Within a year and a half, we had um, sold our house, paid off everything, moved to Washington, D.C., where um, we were just very blessed to be in a great community of learners and thinkers. And I studied at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Studies, which is a Roman degree, uh, a Vatican degree of um, just diving into the meaning of marriage and family established by John Paul II himself. It's a beautiful place to study if anybody's interested in the mind of John Paul II and in, in thinking all these things through. So we were there for two years, but in the first semester, so we'd come from Phoenix, grew up in Phoenix, born in Phoenix. Um, first semester in Washington, D.C., and I get to class early, and it's November 2003. And I'm there with one other person who's there early. We're both catching up on reading before class. It's a good half hour before class. And so we're studying and she's a couple rows ahead of me. And all of a sudden I hear crying and she's not studying anymore. I look up and she's looking at her phone and she's just, oh, oh, just, just not sobbing, but really crying, really crying. And I didn't know much about her except her name. And one other important fact, I said, Rainy, are you okay? What's going on? You Okay. And she turned around and she said the one other fact that I knew about her, because that's all she talked about. She said, they stole my bishop. They stole my bishop. <laughs> that's the only thing I knew about her. Was she talked about this amazing bishop that she was going to go back home to Wichita and work for, who had sent her to the John Paul II Institute to study. And I said, oh, no, because that's the only thing I knew about her. It's like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, where'd they send him? And she goes, Phoenix. <laughs> and I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Remy. Um, I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> and so um, this great bishop she was talking about was Thomas Olmsted, who uh, 
was coming to Phoenix. And when we left, um, when we left Phoenix, we didn't know what we'd be doing when we got back. We just knew we needed to study this and we wanted to share this good news with adults. I had been through a lot of experiences watching my students, my junior high students go through absolute hell with their parents divorcing, seventh and eighth grade. And, and just with what I would see them go through. And it dawned, it dawned on me over time that it really was the parents not knowing what, not, not making good decisions that was wrecking the kids' world. So that's why we were there to study. So I met with our new bishop at the time, 2003 Bishop Olmstead, that Christmas. And he was so excited that somebody was already there studying and was planning to come back to Phoenix. And he said, well, there's no job right now, but we'll see when we get back. And so when I got back, they had put two offices together uh, to make a single office so that I could support a family, the marriage and family office with the Respect Life office. And I got hired. And so I've been doing that work ever since. That's amazing. So what do you do as a director? So my work is to um, be the representative of the bishop because he can't be everywhere at once, right? So technically, the only thing absolutely necessary in a diocese is the bishop um, and the priests and, and, the, and those that help them in their parishes. But we have a large diocese, and so we have a rather large staff here at the pastoral center. My particular work is to be the uh, representative of our bishop to the community, to the media. So doing things like this, um, like talking to you, um, to our pastors especially. So assisting our pastors in being strong in these areas of marriage, family, and life. And training leaders to help them in their work. Um, that's our primary job. Um, I have seven amazing employees on my team, and we cover all the areas from marriage and family to um, natural family planning, theology of the body, and all of the life issues. So all the areas where the dignity of life needs to be taught, where the sanctity of life is threatened. Um, we, we do a lot of education, a lot of leadership training, and we try to help the diocese be a stronger place in all of those areas so that the gospel can thrive. As we do this, we um, have three strategic anchors for what we do. We essentially uh, share the gospel, including our own witness uh, when we form uh, those that we're forming for leadership. We uh, remember the centrality of marriage and the family in everything, including education. The family is at the basis of everything, the future of, of the society and the church, John Paul II says goes through the family. So the gospel, marriage and the family, and we mentor leaders personally. So we seek to find leaders with potential or take those leaders that the pastors are sending us and spend time with at least a core of them to really mentor them personally and help them be good at what they do. So that, that competency and that leadership and hopefully that holiness spreads. Do you get to do a lot of hands-on work? It sounds like you started off loving the nitty-gritty, wanting to do the hands-on work. Are you able to do that, or is it kind of uh, delegating? Yeah, I would die if I wasn't able to do some direct teaching. So I have to do. I have to be teaching. That's my what God has given me to do. And so I do both direct marriage preparation teaching of couples that are preparing for marriage, um, 
I do some coaching with couples that are struggling, not counseling, but coaching. So there's some teaching there. And, um, and I also form leaders and that's a, that's an important coaching work. So all kinds of trainings that we do as well. Cool. Well, praise yeah. God for Bishop Olmstead and his vision. Um, I'm going to start with the, sorry, go ahead. What? No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm so grateful that, uh, yeah, that we've had Bishop Olmstead in our diocese and I'm, I'm grateful for Bishop Dolan joining us now as well. Yeah. I'm excited to meet him hopefully someday, hopefully soon. I'm going to start with a kind of an easy question, but maybe it's not quite so obvious, but why is marriage and respect life? Why, why did we merge it? Like why, why did we merge it into one office? Sure. Sure. Um, well, again, practically speaking, it, it made sense to be able to have a salary that, that someone could raise a family with. And the best thing that I have ever been able to do for my children is make sure that their mom can be home with them. So having a salary that, that supports that, even though there's a lot of sacrifices with that, um, has been essential. So that was part of it. It was practical. How do these things fit together? I think, um, I think the, um, what I'd like to do to explain that is just read a quote from John Paul II in one of his social teaching encyclicals or letters uh, where he said the following, quote, it is necessary to go back to seeing the family as the sanctuary of life. The family is indeed sacred. It is the place in which the gift of life, a gift of God can be properly welcomed and protected against the many attacks to which it is exposed and can develop in accordance with that what constitutes authentic human growth. In the face of the so-called culture of death, the family is the heart of the culture of life. And so, un, uh, unquote. And so um, these things very naturally fit together in that. Um, this, this is the core of human love, right? Human love is called to, we're, we're all called to intimately participate in human love. And most of us, the laity, are called into this, this gift from God called marriage, this lifelong covenantal fruitful commitment of, of life and love. And that if that is strong, everything else in society goes better, particularly the protection of all human life, both at the beginning of life, when there is a disability, right, in, the, in, in a person, and at the end of life, when life is coming to an end, when the family is strong, all of those things can be easy, more easily, none of it's easy, but more easily taken care of and protected because of the bond of love that's there, that's there naturally. And so life is best protected inside the family. So families being strong is key. At the same time, the church has to make a constant case for the dignity and inviolability of every human life. And that is best done from a family perspective. That's best done from a family perspective, right? Um, people, people make moral decisions based on their, their degree of love for the person. And so... Um, the family and its, its relations are something that all of us can understand. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's not sufficient to defend life by saying, you know what, humanity is important. Humanity is important. That's, of course, true. 
Um, but the case has to be made for why every human person is called to love and to be loved. And the easiest way to make that case is by comparing um, relationships to family relationships, right? We have a certain duty to our families, a certain duty, therefore, to all human beings, because all human beings are made in the same image of God that the members of our family are. Yeah. So there's a lot of, lot of ways that this makes sense to join these two things together. And I'm very, very grateful. It also makes our office kind of the office in charge of everything that the culture uh, yeah. on one level doesn't like about the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, especially the sexual revolution culture, you know, all the issues find themselves in our office. Anytime there's a call about something sexual comes to our office, you know, every time there's an issue about, uh, you know, rights and life and all that kind of stuff, death penalty, all that kind of stuff comes into our office. And so, you know, that's kind of fun too, you know, because you get to work at your ability to try and make sense of this to everyday person in the public, which is important. We need to do that. The fact that you find that fun just shows how you are well suited for this job. (laughs) (laughs) I don't always find it fun. I'll say that. Not every instance is fun, but it is always, um, it's always this feeling of tremendous responsibility and, and gratitude um, that we get to defend life, you know, even of persons that we will never hear their voice, the unborn child, um, the person who is in a coma at the end of life, you know, those people need defending. The church defends every person and the church defends every marriage. So, you know, when these things are under attack, it's the church's job to make the case persistently and repeatedly and hope, hopefully persuasively and winningly. And that's a fun battle to be involved in. I could just dive into so many stories from the tribunal, but I, I'll, I'll rein it in. I, I'm, <laughs> again, glad that you, you found it fun. Although I, I do think that it's important that people know that, um, that the church does fight for every marriage and make the case because, um, of course, a lot of people don't know about the cases at the tribunal necessarily. Maybe I'll make another episode and ask Nicole to come on, but. um, Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. I think uh, I want to talk about marriage before we dive into children and your experience, what obscure issue is really underrated and really needs to be talked about more before a couple gets married? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a hundred conversations that have to be had between couples. And the more that couples lack really solid and and joy-filled examples of marriage when they head into marriage, the more conversations have to be had. And and Marriage Prep does a pretty good job of at least really encouraging all those conversations. We've learned a lot over the last 50 years. But I would say this would have been a totally different answer 50 years ago. But now I would say the question that has to be discussed at length And at multiple levels is the question, so what do I think marriage is? Hey, everybody. Interrupting this part of the podcast really fast to explain what the tribunal is. The tribunal is the court of the bishop to educate ecclesiastical judicial cases, most often marriage annulment cases. Essentially, they are the ecclesiastical law office of the church and uh, as a notary at the tribunal, I helped with marriage annulments and permissions and dispensations for marriages. 
So when we are looking at marriage annulment cases, we look at what is going on at the time of consent, what was going on before and during the marriage vows. So it doesn't matter what happened later on in the marriage. It matters if you were able to make that vow and if you understood what you were saying yes to. So we hear a lot about people's past, a lot about people's upbringing. So obviously it can be a little bit depressing, but also we do get to see lots of beautiful marriages and help couples get married as well by providing permissions and dispensations. There's so much to unpack there that I will just reach out to Nicole Delaney, the director of the tribunal, and ask her to come on the podcast. Cool, cool. All right, back to Mike. You know, if you think of your tribunal experience, I'm sure a lot of the testimony is, I did not understand when I got married, that marriage was this. <laughs> and so the conversation, what to share with your future spouse, what do I believe marriage to be? A more practical way of understanding, so that's kind of a philosophical question, right? Is it for life? Is it for my good and your good, no matter what we face? Is it for the procreation education of children? This is what the church teaches it to be. Is that what it's for? Is that what I believe marriage is? Here's another more practical and more dramatic way to ask the question. You can ask, is there anything short of one of us dying for which I would leave this marriage? And if the answer to that is, oh yeah, there are things I would leave over, then that person is not ready to be married. Yeah. I think in my experience, I've think that uh, I know couples that should have talked maybe more about their roles in the family or in the future, especially with children. Yeah. And that's, that's part of it. Right. So is, is marriage for the procreation is, is, is marriage for bringing babies into the world and then educating them for 18 to 30 years. <laughs> is that what, is that what it's for? Is that what we're getting into here? The answer from the church's perspective is yeah. That's exactly what you're getting into. But, but often, again, because people have not had a lot of role models that have done that in a way that brought them a lot of life or they saw a lot of goodness in that, oftentimes people will later say, this is not what I bargained for. And so a realistic discussion, of course, with guidance of what that commitment means. And obviously the issue of roles is part of that. Yeah, for example, there's a question on the on the focus inventory, which is one of the tools we use in marriage prep. It's a dialogue tool. It's not a test. It's a dialogue tool. Tool. You're not being tested on your compatibility or anything like that. Um, but what it does is it prompts important discussions. And one of the one of the uh, statements in that is, um, we have talked about what it means to be husband and wife, which is, is another way of asking the question, what is marriage, right? And it's very interesting how that, how that statement impacts couples. A lot of Americans are very egalitarian. And we've even had couples you know, tell us, shit, my wife and I did marriage prep at the Newman Center for four years. And they would tell us, oh, well, we don't use those terms. Those terms are kind of outdated, husband and wife. We like partner, which is already the beginning of an answer to the question, what is marriage, right? It's a partnership. It's and so we would, we would spend a lot of time just on that question, right? Is there any difference at all between the two of you? 
once children, and this is to your question, once children arrive, how is this going to impact your lives? And there's all often this very idealistic, well, you know, one of us will try to stay home to our part of the time or whatever, whatever aspect of child raising is being discussed. And it was very shallow. And so we would try to push that conversation um, to be as, as deep as we could go. Um, but you're right, that is something um, that people don't discuss often enough at a, at a deep enough level. Yeah, it's very important to do. Because um, children are amazing. Children are amazing. Yeah. And they are, the, the, the church says, the, the um, crowning fruit, the crowning gift of marriage. Children are the crowning gift of marriage. It's a remarkable statement. And yet it is a serious responsibility that will um, cost you your ego. Amen. Deacon Jim Keating, one of my favorite teachers on this stuff, is uh, he says, you cannot drag your inflated ego into heaven, husbands and wives, <laughs> and, and wives but husbands. Um, and the good news about marriage is that if your spouse doesn't kill your ego off, your children will. <laughs> oh. You can't bring it with you anyways. You've got, it's got to diminish anyways. And we don't really want our egos to be massive. What we want is love and, and love costs, you know, and that's important to talk about before marriage. Yeah. I, um, so because I worked at the tribunal, we would use the focus tests, you know, in a case of annulment, we would take a look at those. So my poor husband, now husband, when he's my fiance, I was like, <laughs> this is a really big deal because I know from my job that we look at these. And unfortunately, I'm I'm a very decisive person. Not unfortunately, I think it's great. I'm a very decisive <laughs> black and white person. Whereas my husband is more like, I don't know. Like, let's think about that. And like, he's he's morally black and white. But when it comes to like uh, the, the statements, he's just like, oh, I don't know. So he put a lot of, I don't knows. And the thing is with the focus test is that if it's, even if it's like, I don't know. And yes, it's like, oh, you disagree. And so we didn't do. Your score goes down oh, with, every, score with every, I don't know your score goes. Yeah. That's yeah. hard on a type A. That's oh really my gosh. On. He, we like walked out of our little meeting with the engaged or the, the couple, the mentor couple. And he's like, I think that went well. And I just start crying and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. We're, we're good now. We worked it out. I, I, you know, once he understands that it was a, it was a stressful experience for me coming from the tribunal. But I mean, he also is like, I told him like, you're not getting out of this. I know what I'm getting myself into. What, what was his, given the fact that he was more of a type B personality and you're type A, when you said that, um, I know what I'm getting into here. What would, what did he say about his own commitment? Oh, he was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So was he was, re he was ready with that. He yeah. Wasn't it, oh no. Yeah. He, um, he actually became Catholic when we were in college, but, uh, we've been dating for two years. We got married after six years of dating, but he, we had so many Catholic friends and also my tribunal friends who are, you know, the joke was made often of like, you're in it now. Like you're, you're stuck here. Um, but he was, he's was totally good with that. He was you know, he was a champ. Yeah. It's no solution to not know what you're getting into. Yeah. Right. No I mean, yeah. And in a world that demands 
no accountability for promises, especially promises made while young. Um, you, you need to have clarity on them. And one of the things we teach in marriage prep is we ask the couples, so how many of you want to keep your vows for your whole life? And everybody raises their hand and say, keep your hands up now if you continue to agree, no matter what. No matter if this person loses their ability to speak someday. No matter if this person loses their ability to walk. What if they lose their sense of humor? And like the hands are like quavering sometimes. <laughs> and we don't go into every, you know, potential difficulty. But it's important that the all in is there. I love how Jordan Peterson puts it. Um, he says the marital commitment is absolutely essential because this is just psychological because the person needs to know I'm not leaving for you ever. I'm not ever leaving because what does that do for us? That frees us to be honest. I can now be honest because yeah. this person's not going anywhere and I can talk about fears and I can talk about worries. I can talk about mistakes I've made in the past. I can talk about weaknesses that I know I have. I can do all those things within marriage. And um, that's, that's why marriage is such a, a wonderful path to holiness because it's, it's iron sharpening iron all the way through if it's truly a marital commitment. Well, I feel like you're kind of alluding to this, but what do you think is the top thing that would hurt a marriage? Yeah, um, there's a lot of ways we're going to hurt each other, right? Because we're in a fallen world and that hurts, right? There's a whole bunch of things in the world that at some point are, are going to be painful, right? So marriage is for that, right? Your commitment is for that. So that during those difficult times, you've got each other and love and family. So the world is going to hurt us because it's a fallen world, but then also we're falling, right? And so I'm going to hurt my wife, sometimes unintentionally, right? Just saying a stupid offhanded comment or whatever, plenty of evidence of that. And so I think with all the things we can work on in our marriage, communication and conflict resolution and financial awareness and decision-making and all that stuff, all of which can also hurt a marriage. I think the most hurtful thing is to lack forgiveness and to not know how to forgive. I was, um, or Sharon and I teach a, a retreat periodically with some really good experienced friends of ours that are in a 50 year marriage now, a beautiful couple, uh, Peter and Cynthia Lemieux. They're just heroes of ours in marriage. They have very different personalities, maybe like you and your husband. <laughs> they have a whole, whole bunch of ways, right? And so they have conflict regularly marriage because their personalities are just very different. Um, they have become artists of forgiveness. And I remember one of the times we were teaching with them and we went into a, some pretty heavy stuff with regard to marriage. This was a we, couples that are already married retreat. And we were, we were getting ready for an important dialogue for the couples. And they said, as we go into this, we're going to show you how we forgive each other. And they actually did a, like a drama, a play acting of, of a difficult conversation. 
And then Peter said, I am so sorry, please forgive me. And Cynthia said, I forgive you. After that long of a pause, right? Because that's a very realistic way that this happens, right? Sometimes we have to wait to forgive. And then they just gave each other the biggest hug. And, then, and, and they said, the more there is to forgive, the longer the hug. You've got to touch each other. It's like, I was sitting there the first time going, geez, this is kind of cheesy. It's kind of, <laughs> this is kind of like, as if the, these are adults, like they, they can figure out how to forgive each other. We just need to, man, I was so wrong. So we went to this break and uh, the couples were all over the church and they were outside. It was a big group of couples. And the amount, I was just walking, you know, to, to go pray and the amount of emotion that was happening all over the church um, was profound. It was just profound. And I think sometimes we have to be taught how to forgive because we didn't learn how to forgive very well in our families. That's where we're supposed to learn it. It should be like regular dialogue to be able to forgive. But I think a lot of people don't really learn that. How to ask for forgiveness, how to say specifically what you're sorry for, how to, how to forgive someone truly from the heart, and then how to, how to finish it. Um, and so I think that's the thing that hurts marriage most because it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful and challenging walk at times together. And when we hurt each other, not if we hurt each other, when we hurt each other, we need to, we need to quickly move to forgiveness and we have to know how to do that. And so I would say, and when that doesn't happen, resentment builds up and resentment is about the worst thing that happens in any relationship. And when it happens in marriage, it can really, it can be like an account gaining interest. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion that one person didn't see coming, but it's built up over time. Um, and so, yeah, that, I, that's something we need to teach couples. That's something couples need to, to be good at. And then of course, some of, the, some of the arguments, some of the fights, some of the ways that forgiveness happened can be some of the best memories in a marriage. You know, just like a friendship, same thing. I think that your answer is better than mine. <laughs> what were you going to say? But I was thinking, uh, but I think this is pro- probably just because this has been, you know, what I've been having to talk about with teens and stuff was contraception because yeah. it, it clearly breaks the vow of marriage and then it it affects your ability to fully give yourself to one another. And so I was thinking along that path of, um, holding back from somebody and breaking the vow. So that was my, I I was going in a different direction, but I think that both are obviously, Um, well, there's definitely a connection. In fact, the, the retreat I was describing, the session we presented prior to this forgiveness talk was on the sexual relationship of the husband and wife. And contraception was thematic in that talk. And um, yeah, contraception is, is so insidious in a marriage. Um, and the reason that it, that it hurts so much is that it takes an act that is meant to be a completely free, total, faithful, and fruitful act, which, by the way, is a great way to finish forgiving each other. <laughs> in, a marriage, in a marriage speaking of great memories speaking of great, um 
you know, and, and John Paul II helped us so much with this because rather than simply framing it in terms of a, of a moral right and wrong, which it is, it's, it's a moral wrong, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually an intrinsic evil, meaning that contraception can never be practiced towards the good ever. It can never bring about good. It's an intrinsic evil. What it does is it takes what John Paul II taught us is the language of the body, body language, but in, in, in the marital embrace, it's a very intense body language where we're saying to each other, here I am, my beloved, freely, totally, and faithfully, and fruitfully yours, and it twists it into a lie sometimes without intending it to be a lie. So, so people don't know this. And what they find is the later fruits of this is we're just miserable in our marriage after contraception use. And we don't know why we don't even want to engage in this act anymore. Part of it is that the, what was supposed to be a truthful encounter has become a, a twisting of what's supposed to be spoken with our bodies and it becomes a lie. And lies are never beneficial to love whether they're verbal lies or body language lies. So there's, there's an objective lie in contracepting the act that could bring new human life into the world that harms a marriage profoundly. And every priest that's been hearing confessions knows this. We have some, uh, some amazing confessors in this diocese and, and um, some of them will, in hearing a confession, ask about that. Um, are you and your spouse? Um, using contraception. And often people won't connect that to their misery. They'll be like, yeah, but what, that, what does that have to do with it? Let me explain what that has to do with it. You know, the other meaning of the word intercourse besides sexual intercourse is communication. So we had intercourse over this topic. It's an old way, way of using the word, but it's still, it's still in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. And one, one bishop that I heard explain on this is, he goes, how would a marriage be doing? If every time a husband came to his wife and said, hey, I have something really important to share with you, she plugged her ears. (laughs) Every time a wife came to her husband and said, I really have something important to say to you, he put on his headphones. That's contraception. Contraception is placing a barrier in the place of fundamental marital communication. And we would expect that marriage to be miserable and we expect, without fail, a contraceptive marriage to be miserable. Yeah, it's also trying to take, and I feel like I don't know why we've I've gotten all like I've got the ambulance, a fire truck, and multiple trucks driving by right now. Um, I didn't hear any of it. So. Oh, that's good. I was like, man, this audio is gonna be wonky. But um, also, you're trying to take control of something that shouldn't necessarily be in your control. You're supposed to be. Uh, giving it to God and to each other, but instead you're holding it and trying to take control of it. God is the author of life. And anytime we try to take life into our own hands, we irrigate ourselves to the place of the creator and we, we do damage. We do damage. We do it out of fear usually, right? And fear is a very powerful motivator. The only thing more powerful than fear is love. This is why your earlier question about, you know, what's the most important discussion? This is at the heart of that question. What is marriage? What do I think marriage is? If I think contraception is perfectly fine within marriage, then what that means is I don't understand several things about marriage. I don't understand what the marital act is, which is actually a renewal of the couple's vows. 
with body language. I don't understand the gift of children, even, even unexpected children are a tremendous gift. Yes, of course, there's difficulty. Yes, of course, there's sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't want sacrifice, then you fundamentally do not understand what love is. If you don't understand sacrifice, you don't understand love. Love without sacrifice is sentimentality. It's a hallmark card. It's a joke. And, and yet people aren't formed to think that way. And they go into marriage with a hallmark card, bridal, bridal party, party atmosphere, mentality about what marriage is. It's the wedding day and the emotions and the photos and the and the feelings and the perfect honeymoon and everything's got to go right. And it's this insane um, um, candy fantasy that, that is of course going to disappoint compared to a fantasy line. But contraception is at the heart of, of a violation of the vows themselves. Yeah. I think that with contraception, a lot of people, a criticism of the Catholic church, especially getting married in the Catholic church is all of our rules, especially for marriage, because like you said, um, that's one of the big, you know, the criticisms almost of the Catholic church are in, you know, are answered by your office, the marriage, homosexuality, contraception, abortion, all of it. Um, so can we talk about why these rules are important, why they, sure. why the church has them, um, why, I mean, I, I think you, you, you know, I love rules. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're I'm all about it. And I think that there's freedom in rules and I could go on about that, but, um, but what would you yeah, say? Maybe you want to, maybe you want to add something about that. Right. So uh, Benedict XVI taught repeatedly that anytime the church says no to anything, she's acting like a mother in a dangerous neighborhood. And what she is doing is through saying no out of love, it is simply and only to protect a far greater yes. So the yes to something requires a no to other things. If I say yes to a career as a teacher, um, I'm saying no to other careers, right? It's just, it just goes with the territory. And we can also think of it in terms of... Um, a playground, right? Children on a playground. There's been a study done that when, when there's a fence around a playground, the children run into the playground and run right to the fence and up against the fence. And they play their game and then they go play their games. Like um, when there's a playground with no fence, they run out and they huddle in the middle hmm. together. Young children do. There's no freedom in just huddling together in the middle of a field, right? But why, but why do they do that? Because they don't know where the boundary is. We do very well as human beings when we understand the boundaries making, making the game playable, right? I mean, we would hate to be on a freeway with no rules, right? Uh, it wouldn't be a fun place to drive. Not, not for the non-aggressive anyway. Uh, it would not be a fun place to drive. And so, we have to ask if a rule is there, why it is there. Mm -hmm. And anything with regard to marriage and the rule, the rules of the church, or we can say um, the clar clarifications of the church, is that it provides the optimal, um, 
optimal boundary within which we have tremendous freedom to love. When we go beyond that boundary, we always hurt ourselves. And then we hurt other people and we are not loving at that point, right? Contraception is one example. Abortion obviously is an example. Um, divorce, adultery, these, these, are, these are boundaries um, which the Lord gives us to give us a protected place to play the game of love well. And that's, that's why marriages and families that, that follow the rules, we could say that, that, that accept these limitations for the sake of love tend to thrive. Yeah, I was going to use that. We, we play a lot of board games. I was going to use that analogy of uh, the board games. Not only are you learning how to play, but you, you learn how to play it well. Um, I, I think also what? Yeah, no fun to play a board game without rules. Oh, yeah. It's just chaos and anarchy. Going back to um, the procreation, we know that marriage is supposed to be unitive and procreative. But what would you say to a couple who is infertile? And um, especially if they feel like this is a part of their marriage that is missing, especially in the eyes of the church. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, as far as the teaching of the church goes, there is, um, there's nothing invalid about a marriage that finds a couple that can, finds that they cannot naturally uh, conceive and or carry children to term. So there's nothing invalid about that marriage. That marriage remains good. It remains an image of Christ and his church. It remains a sacramental gift to the church and to the world. But it's very painful. And, um, and yet the church, what the church would say is that motherhood and fatherhood and fruitfulness in general is not exhausted in biological children. It's not the only possibility. We have friends that live uh, around the corner from us that have had that cross and their marriage never were able to conceive and and bear children who have uh, foster adopted um, 13 children. They have the fullest house in our whole neighborhood. And all of these children come from different families. Some of them are siblings with each other. All of them were in really difficult circumstances when they came to this family. This family is holy. This family is an example of God's beautiful fruitfulness. And they're, they're just beautiful. I mean, um, it's, a, it's extremely challenging. They've got all kinds of challenges. Their, their youngest son, no, their second youngest son has severe uh, disabilities. But he's happy. He's happy. What's that? Did the Hirsch family? Not the Hirsch family. That's another same thing. Well, I think that they go by cheaper by the dozen. So I guess it wouldn't be 13. <laughs> yeah, they've, they started a podcast. I mean, this is kind of a thing at our parish. This is the Ruiz family, Vicky and Chuck. And uh, yeah, they're just, they're just a remarkable, remarkable couple. Very, um, just extremely generous. So there's that option. Um, there's obviously... Other ways, we, uh, we have a couple that were never, never able to have children that have taught um, all of our children music. They became teachers, teachers in Catholic schools, and they're, they're extraordinary uh, music teachers. And they taught our children, because we were homeschooling at the time, they taught our children for free um, and just give themselves over to that task. And in that way, they're mothering and fathering. And we should sense this as Catholics, because we call priests who are celibate father, and we call 
nuns who are celibate mother and sister. So this, this family thing in the church is far greater than married couple with biological children. That is cold comfort to couples that are in the middle of suffering. Yeah. And I don't, I want to recognize that. One of the, the, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. One of the hardest phone calls that I had at the tribunal was a a man who called me and was like, I was, I'm going to get married. It's going to be great. Cool. Um, But I just found out that because I was in a ski accident, a while ago and I'm now paralyzed, I'm not allowed to get married in the Catholic church. And I, I think I was just like, hold please. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Father Chris. Um, and, but I don't think that people know about that. And I think first reactions. So to be clear, he was paralyzed and was not able to engage in the marital act. And people don't know about that necessarily that if you are not able to have sex, you are not allowed to get married in the Catholic church. And I think that people think that we're cruel and that we're like, how dare we do that? But the, I, if you understand the definition or the, um, importance, what is the word I'm trying to, the purpose and the mission of marriage? Yeah. The centrality of the marital act to marriage. Yeah. Yeah. they're, They're almost synonymous, right? Marriage and sex are almost synonymous. Right. This is this is the relate the relationship which uh, society has always given to man and woman in order to help them to have a place to land with their sexuality. That's that's what marriage is. Um, and so, people fifty years ago, people would not have been shocked by impotence, not infertility but impotence being a barrier to marriage. They wouldn't have been shocked by that at all. They would have said, well, that makes total sense. But what's happened in, since the sexual revolution, if we have distanced marriage and sexuality so far away from each other that people find this to be offensive as if marriage is simply whatever we want to make it up to be. And that's, that's a rather, making marriage whatever we want it to be is a brand new invention. And it is, it is crumbling our society further. It's crumbling the problems of the, of the family further. Um, the reason a person who is incapable of entering the marital act cannot validly marry, uh, by the way, you can receive a civil annulment for this as well, not just a Catholic annulment, although it won't bar you to civil marriage. Um, but, but impotence uh, is, a, is a, a means to annul a civil marriage as well because this is recognized even in the definition of civil marriage. Um, the reason you, can't, you cannot enter marriage validly is that the vows that you make at the altar cannot be concretely given in the act that makes marriage to be marriage. Um, and yeah, 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 it's hard to find an analogy that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you simply can't do what marriage is called to do. And therefore, um, and therefore you can't enter, enter the vows in the first place. Doesn't mean that you can't love. I think that's what, what people hear when they hear that. Oh, that means I don't get to love. Other people get to love and I don't get to love. That's where our, our notion of love is very shallow as well. Love is, is far more expansive than the relationship between a husband and a husband far more expansive than that. 
It's not to say you can't have um, intimate friendships, right? Intimate friendships are a crucial aspect of love. Doesn't mean that you can't live in partnership with someone to support each other for the needs in your life. Um, the way two sisters would, right? Um, who no longer have their husbands or something like that. There's, there's a lot of ways to love. Uh, it also is, is not paying much attention to the fact that in the Catholic church, choosing celibacy is a path of love. It's actually a path of love, right? What does Jesus say? Um, some, some are eunuchs and therefore cannot marry because they have been made that way, right? They have a disability. So this is directly from Jesus when he's talking about marriage. Some choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Some choose that. Some are actually called to that. And therefore, love cannot be reduced to sexual love. And so marriage is particularly for sexual love. That's what it's for. The church will always clarify that and defend that. And I think if we really think about it more dispassionately, we can see that if that is changed, if that is compromised, then marriage ceases to have any kind of specific meaning at all. What is it, just two people living together? Is it, I mean, that, that could be anybody. That could be family. That could be, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's one of the more difficult conversations to have, though. Oh, yeah. Experience Because it tends to be very personal. I mean, oh, obviously, right. the, the case you gave is very personal. Um, we, what is marriage would lose its distinctiveness as a relationship completely yeah. if we didn't, if sexuality was not at the heart of it. And, that, and that's why when there was the um, arguments put forward for same-sex marriage, nobody argued that it could be a sexless relationship. Everybody said that it has to be a sexual relationship. They have to have sexual attraction for each other because we've always known that marriage and sexuality go together. And so that was, they, they never said, they never those that were making the case for homosexual marriage never allowed for there to be simply a civil partnership law that would just let you live together and, right. and get certain benefits for supporting each other. They never supported that um, because we all know in the end that marriage is directly connected to sexuality. Going back to contraception, one, once more, one more time, but with natural family planning, uh, I know that I've heard um, natural family planning be called being called like, you know, Catholic birth control, um, or just I've gotten the question of like, why is natural family planning? Okay. But not birth control. So can you talk about that? Why natural family planning? We are, if, if a couple is called to maybe wait to have children, if they feel like they're discerned that this is not the right time, they can use natural family planning, but why is that not considered sinful? The contraception? Yeah. Good question. So, um, couple of distinctions to make. Catholic, it, it has been called Catholic birth control. The church in a certain sense um, does not have a serious issue with birth control. What do we mean by that? Um, the church calls every couple to responsible parenthood. Um, that means that couples have to discern a lot of things as they uh, have children, and there can be serious reasons to postpone having children, and the church teaches even for an indefinite amount of time, right, at times. It's very serious. Um, so what do I mean by the church doesn't completely reject birth control? The church doesn't reject the couple making decisions, responsible decisions to postpone the children. That's what I mean. 
they have a certain amount of control over the situation. Contraception is totally different. And I have heard people call natural family planning Catholic contraception. Oh, it's just Catholic contraception. It's just the natural version. And that's demonstrably false. So NFP can never be contraceptive. Although it can be a means to postpone having a child for a time that's very effective. It's very effective. The modern methods of NFP are very effective for doing that. What do I mean that can't be contraceptive? Well, what is contraception? Contraception is something that a couple decides to do before, during, or after the act to try to remove the possibility of the generation of a new human being. That's what contraception is. The couple actively does something to prevent, to try to prevent the uh, conception and continuation of a pregnancy. That's what contraception. And so you have all these barrier methods, chemical methods that try to do that and which require the couple's will to use. Uh, that's what contraception is. NFP doesn't do that. NFP does not do that. A woman is only fertile during a very narrow window of time each cycle. That wasn't the human person's idea. That was God's idea. Men are always fertile. Very simple situation there. Women have a narrow range of fertility, some seven to 10 days during a given cycle during which pregnancy um, is possible. And the, the female ovum, the egg, which unites to the sperm, unites with the sperm, only lives 12 to 24 hours. It only lives that long. So there's this window during which a, a woman, um, uh, if she has intercourse during that time, can become pregnant that we teach couples. The rest of the time, she's naturally infertile. She's naturally infertile, and that was God's decision to make that rhythm part of her makeup as a woman. And so NFP doesn't do anything before, during, or after the act to change the act and twist it in such a way that it will not bear children by adding something, barring something, uh, withdrawing before ejaculation, whatever, whatever the couple does to try to contracept and change the act. NFP does not change the act. NFP is just knowledge. And we time the act for the fertile time, the infertile time, based on our serious considerations as a couple for um, bringing a new child into our marriage at this given time. Um, and they need to be just reasons. You know, when we, when we teach couples uh, about use of NFP and they always have, you know, if they're very conscientious, they have a lot of angst. Well, what would be a serious reason? What would be a just reason to postpone a pregnancy? And I just, the church doesn't give specifics. It says, it does say in Humanae Vitae that the couple must consider the psychological, uh, economic, and health issues surrounding uh, the situation in order to make a just judgment. And there can be grave reasons, uh, serious reasons, just reasons to postpone. On the one hand, if the wife's health, if, if even very pro-life doctors have told, have told them that the wife's health is seriously at stake in another pregnancy, that's a very serious reason. Not to contracept, but to use natural family planning during the fertile time. Um, or to postpone intercourse for, for a very indefinite amount of time until, until we really have NFP down, whatever, whatever the case may be. But NFP can be used obviously there. In crisis, the economic crisis, obviously that would be a reason, right? 
um, for serious mental health issues, that could be a serious reason, uh, is we have always dreamed of having a boat, a serious reason. Well, obviously not, right? And sometimes people will struggle over that. Like, oh, uh, but it, but then the, you know, the two vacations a year plan, right? Those dreams before we're married, like this is what marriage is going to be like, right? No, no, that's, that's okay. And those would be extremely not serious reasons not to have a child. On, on the other end, you know, there are very serious reasons that, can, that a couple may have, and it is the couple's freedom. It is their job to be responsible parents to make those decisions together and with their priest when they're, when they're confused about it, you know, you can always ask the priest, would this be a serious, or ask good friends that, you know, understand what's going on. So you can always ask for counsel. I think there's also something to be said about, you know, nature. I feel like that if you'd want to take God out of it, uh, cause I have friends that have considered using natural family planning. Um, and they're, they're not, maybe they don't even believe in God, but working with the natural cycle of the body is something that can appeal to a lot of people. And, um, then you can get into all the, the benefit, the benefits of natural family planning slash the, uh, detriment of birth control. But again, probably another conversation. Yeah. It's just science, right? Yeah. It's just science. Right. I've, yeah, I've had the experience of um, couples becoming inter- more interested in the Catholic church because the church teaches this. And they learned so much, some of them medical professionals, and they, yeah. did, they didn't get a thorough education in this. So. That's one of the things that I love talking to teenagers about. I'm like, this is science. We are on the side of science. So we want to talk about pro-life. We are pro-science. And the other side is much more pro-emotion. Um, and I'm not, I'm not really pro-emotion usually. Um, just my last question what is the best thing that a lay person can do to contribute to the mission of marriage and respects life? Great question. So when you're, when you're single, the best thing you can do is to start from the interior life and pursue your own vocation, whatever that may be. Um, really pursue your vocation. Ask the Lord, follow the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And ask him what he's calling you to do. What kind of love is he calling you into? And just keep following him until that becomes clear. And if it's marriage, the person becomes clear. And if it's the celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, then, then go for it. You know, Go. Act and God will act. It's my favorite quote from Joan of Arc. Act and God will act. Um, so pursue your vocation is the most important thing you can do as a single person. For married uh, laity, I would say, the best thing you can do is to continue to grow in your marriage and to continue to grow in your family and to continue to take your, your responsibilities as the first educators of your children very seriously and your responsibilities to be an example and a model of life and love to your family, your community, um, your neighborhood. Just be an example of that. That's the best thing you can do. From there, we really, really need thoughtful people to come into marriage preparation work. Really need you. So if you've been blessed in your marriage with NFP, with theology of the body, with, um, with raising children, having success raising children, whatever, you know, you've been, become really good at communicating in your marriage, whatever aspect of marriage you've, you've um, and, and especially if you have a teaching gift, we really need you in, in marriage preparation. We have a lot of couples that teach. 
but we always need more. And we find that that um, couples that are in marriage preparation, we prepare about 900 couples a year. It's a lot of it's a lot of education that happens. Um, they thrive when they meet both the experienced, wise couple and the young couple that's hot, that's making it happen now. Yeah. They get they really need that combination of of youth and the wisdom of older age, and um, that's the way we put together a lot of our teams. Um, is is to have a combination of, of levels of life experience, and it's it's really powerful for the couple. So I would say. You know, maybe you're called into marriage. Uh, maybe you're called into pro-life work. Maybe maybe you're called into marriage prep work or marriage enrichment work. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Mike Phelan. If you want to hear the rest of our conversation about homeschooling and building a home and charisms as a married couple, please check out the next episode. And as far as our next guest, we're going to enter into a mini series of different pro-life organizations around the Valley here in Arizona. And um, actually they're national as well. Some of them are. And so I hope that you enjoy our little mini series coming up and I hope that you have a blessed week. Thanks guys. Thank you. Bye.